there appears to be at least some degree of consideration in Ankara that some sort of military confrontation is not only possible, but possibly preferable, right? Or it could be a kind of, you know, would serve as some sort of lasting solution to this, you know, these series of problems that beset the Turkish-Greek relationship. Look at history. Go back in time. If you go too far, the price will be heavy. We only have one sentence for Greece. Do not forget Izmir. After months of hostile aerial and naval encounters between Greek and Turkish armed forces, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan gave this remarkable speech in September. By referring to the 1922 burning of the Greek Anatolian city of Izmir by the Turkish army, Erdogan's threat to Greece was crystal clear. It's a snapshot of a foreign policy that has been decried as revanchist by some of its critics, but is logically assertive by its supporters. From the outside, it can be hard to understand. How can it be that this NATO member is at loggerheads with its Greek neighbour, trade diplomatic blows with European capitals while still technically applying for the EU membership, and participate in NATO peacekeeping missions? To understand, we invited Ryan Jongra, an expert of Turkish foreign policy, to take stock of the country's foreign policy. Is there such a thing as an Erdogan doctrine? Ryan Jongram is a professor in the Department of National Security Affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School. He's an expert on Turkish, Balkan, and Middle East history, and the author of six books, including the forthcoming The Last Days of the Ottoman Empire, which will be released later this month. The views he expresses here are not those of the Naval Postgraduate School, the United States Navy, the Department of Defense, or any part of the United States government. He appeared on this show in a personal capacity and the opinions he gives are his own. As always, please rate and review Uncommon Decency on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and send us your comments or questions either on Twitter at at UndecencyPod or by email at UndecencyPod at gmail.com. But please consider supporting the show through our Patreon where you'll get access to extended content and early episodes. We hope you enjoy this episode. So, I think, to begin, if we had to give kind of a broad understanding of Turkish foreign policy, there's always an attempt to draw up a kind of single doctrine, you know, a Truman doctrine, a Reagan doctrine. Is there a Erdogan doctrine? And usually, when we talk about, you know, Erdogan and Turkish foreign policy... How do I make sense of like Turkish foreign policy? I, uh, How week to week is I would be my uh, response. I think, you know, frankly, it's tempting to try to distill Turkish foreign policy into some th- kind of brief, all-encapsulating phrase. Neo-Ottomanism is one. Um, he, one of his advisors, one of Erdogan's advisors, uh, Ibrahim Cullen, recently used the phrase "precious loneliness." Uh, there is, you know, a lot of, um, you know, I think a lot of incentives to try to uh, distill it um, because um, the, you know, the the polarity of uh, of Turkish foreign policy appears to shift. It appears at times 
um, both accommodating and confrontational. Um, I think in some ways, you know, the, the, the only way that you can perhaps center it on something is on Erdogan's immediate needs, as well as his various, I guess, sort of impulses and motivations. Um, I don't know if there's necessarily a doctrine that can neatly encapsulate those kinds of trends or those kinds of impulses that you see within Turkish foreign policy. Um, in large measure, because, you know, the, you know, his interests derive, Erdogan's interests derive not simply from, you know, his aspirations on the world stage, it also very much reflects his, you know, domestic priorities or his, you know, his domestic um, insecurity at times. And so, you know, you, um, you could say that certainly he has a certain, uh, romantic affection for Ottoman history, um, at the very least, because I think it symbolizes the kinds of things that he would like his rule to be associated with, which is um, grandeur, power, um, global influence, you know, this kind of general largesse of being um, the, the, you know, the, the leader of a, of a prominent state. Um, he's quite willing to pursue you know, these goals, um, while maintaining a veneer of being, you know, a partner and ally within NATO, while being an interlocutor with Russia, um, casting off, you know, both at the same time, again, depending on the issues. Uh, I would say that, um, you know, it, it, if we were to assume that he was, is to remain in power over the next year, um, it, the, his impulses may again change, um, again, depending on where Turkey finds itself economically, um, how conditions may change regionally. Uh, it, it's really, really hard to say. So um, I wish I could give a more satisfying answer than that, but I'm really, really afraid I can't. But let, let's zoom in specifically on the kind of neo-Ottoman um, argument, the idea that, you know, uh, the case is quite compelling, you know, we are in an era of returns, you know, the return of the empire, the empire, sh the empires strike back. Um, and obviously, the Turkish empire is the Ottoman Empire. And in many ways, we're seeing a much more assertive Turkey on the international stage than maybe 20 or 30 years ago. Um, in the Mediterranean, in Syria. Um, so what do you make of this, you know, of this case of uh, and he had a he had a um, foreign foreign affairs minister not so long ago who was quite uh, clearly a, a proponent of this kind of neo Ottoman policy. What is neo Ottomanism, and how much do you think it kind of is useful to kind of make sense of what is going on with, with Turkey? I suppose it's useful only as so far as you maybe don't take it so literally. I think that the you know the phrase neo Ottoman is, you know, um, is again, it's a, it's a tempting way of characterizing Turkish foreign policy because there is so much active illusion made toward the empire, not simply by Erdogan, not simply by other figures within Ankara, but, you know, generally within Turkish society today, it's, it's quite clear that it's a source of inspiration, you know, as well as a source of pride. Um, I think the you know, when you look back, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, 
you know, it's certainly the case that the emergence of Turkey as a more proactive um, force international politics um, is rooted in the work of um, Ahmed Davutoglu, who was, as you as you reference, he was um, Erdogan's foreign minister for a time. He was prime minister for a time. Um, and, you know, he wrote uh, an influential work in which he essentially roots a vision of Turkey's foreign policy against the backdrop of its broader history. In other words, you know, for Davutoglu, he um, asserted that Turkey had a legitimate claim to having an active foreign policy because Turkey's um, lineage is rooted in the Ottoman experience, the Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire being a state having uh, an influence, having played a role in the development of regional politics in the Middle East, in Southeastern Europe, in the Black Sea, even, you know, further away in Africa and in the Indian Ocean and blah, blah, blah. Those, you know, historical connections in Davutu's mind is the foundation for Turkey having an active foreign policy. It's not necessarily, you know, seen from the outset as, uh, as the as the foundation for rebuilding the Ottoman Empire, and I think that's where um, it gets a little bit more unhelpful. Unhel that you know, I'm not necessarily sure Erdogan or anybody else in Ankara is uh, after the you know the, the the you know is actively seeking to rebuild territorially the Ottoman Empire or even structurally the Ottoman Empire. Uh, I think that more than anything, it serves as a historical uh, point of reference or a series of points of reference in thinking about Turkey's relationship to various places in the world and providing a reason for Turkey to play a more active role in those places. And so, you know, for example, when you talk about, let's say, Turkey's relationship with Greece, um, it's hard for Erdogan or anybody else in Turkey to not reference the past in talking about what many people believe are Turkey's natural rights or natural interests. So I think in that respect, you know, Ottomanism can be helpful. Doesn't necessarily fully uh, articulate what is, you know, kind of the, the, the compass that, you know, is helping to steer Ankara, you know, towards foreign policy or anything else. Something else, Ryan, I think that is, I think could be interesting to bring up here is perhaps a kind of neo-Ottoman label also misses something which is, I think, quite new in Turkey's positioning the past few years at least, is the kind of desire for Erdogan to take the mantle of, you know, kind of Islamic nations worldwide. It was quite obvious um, after he got in a pretty open uh, spa with Macron, you know, when Macron made a speech against uh, the rise of Islamism, uh, you had Erdogan coming out saying uh, Macron is being Islamophobic and there was all those tensions, there was those boycotts of French products going internationally. Uh, there's also always been these tensions with Germany when Erdogan in 2020, I believe, um, he was speaking out against German authorities when they raided a mosque in Berlin. Um, so there's been this kind of desire in Turkey, apparently, to get um, to become some, maybe not a kind of an Islamist foreign policy, but at least to be able to kind of be a leader um, in the Muslim world in a way that is kind of much more pronounced than just simply kind of new Ottomans. You know, when you look at this, you know, this trend in his behavior, more specifically, perhaps in, in Erdogan's rhetoric, 
Um, yeah, I mean, again, it, th there is this temptation to see this as an outgrowth of a kind of revanchism centered on, you know, reconstructing in some way the Ottoman Empire. You know, if you step back from it, I mean, there's a couple of ways that you can, you know, maybe center, you know, recenter the ways in which you think about Erdogan in a way that I think is a little bit more nuanced and I think is sort of a, a little bit more accurate. I think first and foremost, there has been a tendency in Turkish foreign policy, not especially pronounced, it's not as well known, but there has long been a tendency in Turkish foreign policy to set Turkey up or to present Turkey as a leader of a certain type of state, right? Specifically states that are predominantly Muslim and or states that are predominantly secular within the wider world, right? I mean, there is there are cases going back to virtually the founding of the Turkish Republic in 1923, where Turkey set itself up as a kind of role model state. Okay. And I think, I think that, you know, that in part is a, you know, weaves itself into this presumption that Turkey can and should play a leadership kind of role. Now, specifically when it comes to Erdogan's rhetoric around Muslim solidarity or Muslim grievance, you know, in part, this too most certainly reflects a global ambition and a global ambition that is in part rooted in the ways in which he sees the Ottoman Empire as perhaps at the very least a source of inspiration or even perhaps a model. But on the other hand, it is a reflection of the ways in which he thinks of Turkish nationalism and the ways in which, you know, he um, embodies this turn within Turkish nationalist ideology towards a kind of Muslim nationalism, right? Which I should say is, you know, uh, has become, you know, somewhat commonplace in various parts of the world when it when we look comparatively at um, the evolution of, of nationalism in, in now the 21st century. There is greater um, emphasis placed upon Muslim identity within Turkey and in various places around the world as well as this willfulness to draw connections between the plight of Muslims in one part of the world versus another, right? And so when he talks about Islamophobia in Europe, or let's say, you know, he harangues the world at their willful, um, uh, you know, um, uh, ignorance or their, their, their lack of interest in, let's say, the, the Rohingya, in uh, in Southeast Asia, you know, other issues that pertain to Muslims. Yes, there's a foreign policy aspect to this, but there's also very much a domestic aspect to this, and it's very much rooted in this desire by him, by his party, by you know, those who are around him to change fundamentally the fabric of Turkish nationalism. And it just so happens there is this foreign policy component. We're, we're going to pivot a little bit towards talking about. Turkey's relationship with the EU, and we will talk about the accession process and how that stalled over the years. But I just wanted to start by sort of setting the picture for what Turkey is doing in Europe's periphery and in some cases its neighborhood. So it launched military interventions in Libya, which is a, what had been a key oil hub for Europe. Um, it's the principal strategic partner for Azerbaijan, who's also a key gas supplier. Um, its TB2 drone played a key role in that war in Nagorno-Karabakh in 2020. It also assists in peacekeeping efforts in Serbia and in oversight of the Dayton Agreement in Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is also looking like a potential hotspot in Europe's neighborhood. Um, and it's becoming increasingly assertive in the Eastern Mediterranean 
as it relates to gas supply. So from a strategic perspective, Turkey is involved in a lot of areas where Europe has key interests. And my question to you is, should the EU see these as challenges to its authority in these areas, or as an opportunity perhaps for, for cooperation and deepening collaboration with Turkey? I would say at the very least, Erdogan would like uh, these various um, issues to be the basis upon which the EU would engage Turkey. I think that's the most uh, accurate and conservative thing you can say, uh, at least from Turkey's standpoint. I'm not sure necessarily um, what how how the EU is supposed to engage directly with Turkey on matters of energy, because I'm not necessarily sure, necessarily sure what other alternatives the EU has. I can't, you know, I'm, I, I, I don't necessarily possess a very strong background in, in energy politics when it comes to the EU. What I would say is that it, it seems to me that Brussels balances these issues of energy alongside a host of other issues when it comes to Turkey um, that cuts in different ways. Um, I think from my standpoint, Brussels' approach towards Turkey um, is a, a little bit more complex than the United States, but I think they share a certain attribute, which is there are lots of people in Brussels who would like to make the Turkey relationship work in and beyond certain advantages Turkey may offer with respect to, say, energy or trade. Um, they want the relationship to work because if it doesn't work, there are really grave implications. At least that's what people, you know, what people believe. And I think that this is what makes the relationship um, somewhat chaotic and fraught. And to go specifically on, on Turkey and Greece, there's been a very visible and tense flare up uh, between both countries on the issues of the um, islands in the Aegean. Um, you wrote an article, which is quite quite remarkable, on this issue um, on the 5th of October for War on, War on the Rocks, um, which is um, titled, let me just have it here, Why Erdogan Might Choose War with Greece. And it's a little, a little jarring, actually, to read. Um, is, there, is there really a chance that Turkey can actually find itself at war with Greece? You know, and both countries, of course, are NATO members. So I wrote this article largely because I think that there is a received wisdom in uh, among people who follow Turkey or just sort of generally follow European politics or geopolitics as a whole uh, that stipulates that Greece and Turkey have been at odds with one another for a very long time, have come close to all-out war on more than one occasion, most recently uh, in the 1990s, although there was a, a very brief uh, and somewhat um, uh, uh, uncertain moment about two years ago when uh, things got a bit hot. Um, off Turkey's coast. But, you know, be that as it may, there is this received wisdom that Turkey and Greece are at times, you know, close to conflict, maybe close to conflict, but saner heads prevail, right? And the reason why is that the consequences of such a conflict are so grave, um, neither party 
really would be able to stomach an actual shooting war. And you know, this is an issue that I've followed pretty closely over the last couple of years. And you know, one thing that struck me is the degree to which the um, the ways in which people in Turkey specifically see this issue bears some resemblance, some resemblance, not total resemblance, but some resemblance to the ways in which Americans saw Iraq in the late 1990s, early 2000s, in which the um, the issue of Greece, or put more of a finer point on the very specific issue of the Aegean, the Aegean islands, and I could go into sort of what those issues are if you'd like, but so suffice to say at the moment that from Ankara's perspective, from the broader perspective of the Turkish population, these are issues that are of longstanding. They have lingered, you know, interminably in a way that's exasperating. Okay. Um, there's a full consensus across the Turkish political spectrum that Turkey is in its right to raise grievances with Greece, but for reasons, um, some of which are beyond Turkey's control, um, Greece still holds this upper hand. Now, there is an equally strong consensus, I would argue, that there are um, th that there is a strong belief that if there was a conflict, it would be over quickly, it would be decisive, and that Turkey would come out on top. Uh, and this is based on Turkey's recent performance in various, you know, military campaigns, be it in Syria or be it in Azerbaijan or in Libya, uh, and that Greece is fundamentally weak. Um, Greece is fundamentally um, risk-averse. And that it all is, you know, sort of needed in reality is just a bit more muscle, a little bit more of a push, right? Now, uh, to kind of bring it down to brass tacks, I think that a conflict may not be um, overwhelmingly likely, but I think that rhetorically, there appears to be at least some degree of consideration in Ankara that some sort of military confrontation is not only possible, but possibly preferable, right? Or it could be a kind of, you know, would serve as some sort of lasting solution to this, you know, th these series of problems that beset the Turkish-Greek relationship. Um, and this is sort of what I try to outline in the article. And the, the last thing I'd say about it is that there's a lot of analysis now, and you most recently saw it in a New York Times article over the weekend, that this is an issue that has emerged um, exclusively because of the election that is looming in Turkey in the summer of 2023, and that this would serve, you know, some sort of, you know, crisis with Greece would serve as a kind of wag the dog scenario in which Turkey would drum up support, you know, Erdogan would drum up support, uh, specifically among nationalists, and that this, you know, any kind of confrontation would be in the service of his re-election campaign. I don't necessarily see it that way. I think that this, um, ha there's been a fair amount of continuity in Turkey's approach towards uh, Greece. The rhetoric, you know, has... Um, there's there's a fair amount of consistency in terms of rhetoric, 
And more importantly, you know, it is something that's conceived of as not simply as an electoral issue, but a matter of geopolitical necessity. It's a matter of existential necessity in terms of the, the desire to have it being, have it solved and solved soon within, you know, you know, within the, you know, within uh, Turkish foreign policy circles. So I think it's something that people should take seriously, not necessarily that it's bound to happen or destined to happen, but I think it's something people definitely should take seriously. And I think what's quite interesting is those kind of conflicts sometimes can happen over kind of miscalculations and you know, the whole sleepwalking walking process uh, described by Christopher Clark doing one one. And you're talking about the, the um, Greek, sorry, Turkish election, but there's also a Greek election happening a month later in July, actually. Um, so you could be in a kind of very interesting situation where uh, both sides kind of end up being backed in a corner. And especially given like, the kind of political environment you're describing in Turkey, it looks like it'd be very difficult for the one to, to kind of back, back, back out of this, such a situation. Um, but one thing, actually, I want to talk a little bit about is... I think in 2020, Macron famously told to Sophie Pierre, of Economist, that NATO was brain dead. Now, obviously, since the invasion of, of Ukraine, it seems like NATO had a bit of a brain surgery and its purpose is, is now very clear to a lot of people. But what's interesting, and I think what a lot of people seem to forget, is he's actually referring to Turkey when he's, taught, when he's making those brain dead comments. He's saying that it doesn't make any sense that doing... It's roughly the moment where you have this huge escalation between between Greece and Turkey going on, and he's saying it doesn't make any sense that two allies within NATO are, are at this level of kind of tensions. Um, how how does how does Turkey approach NATO at this point? Um, how do they approach and also obviously behind NATO of the United States? Um, because there seems to be increasing tensions with with America, but at the same time they're still very much part of NATO. Um, how does t- t- the, the kind of political climate on NATO and the United States look like in Turkey? And how does kind of Erdogan navigate this kind of tight balancing act? You know, um, a few years ago, I think it was in 2016, um, there was a book um, that was published called Inside the Black Box. And it was published by a former um, Turkish um, army officer uh, who uh, conducted a series of surveys of officers essentially across all services and across all ranks. And he polled um, them on a series of different issues. And one of the most interesting um, findings that you see in this study is that officers across the various services in Turkey genuinely find membership in NATO to be of uh, of significant value, significant value in terms of things like readiness, significant value in terms of you know training um, and operational um, compatibility, um, not simply within NATO, but in you know sort of within the combined forces themselves. Uh, and so, in short, you know that that in military terms, um, it's something of real value. What the what his studies also seem to suggest is that the officer corps specifically wasn't necessarily wedded exclusively to NATO's view of uh, collective security. In fact, an overwhelming majority of officers, now this was a while back, this was in 2016, I would say, um, 
you know, saw, you know, saw it of value. I, I forget what the percentage was. It was like 86%, but a significant number saw um, it of value for Turkey to explore other collective security agreements, for example, with the Shanghai, um, uh, with the Shanghai group. And I think what that tells us is that, you know, within the military, but, you know, perhaps I would say, and I think we can be even a little bit confident about this, even without a poll, within civilian circles, um, people understand that NATO gives Turkey advantages. It's also very clear that, you know, that the Turkish security establishment um, does not necessarily see that commitment or that relationship as one that completely defines the ways in which they think about security or they think about the relationship w on a bilateral level with different member states or with the, you know, the, the general collective of, of, of NATO nations. So in short, I think what we see now is um, a, a Turkey that very much has its cake um, whenever it wants and eats it too. Uh, and I think um, that's not going to change because in, in, in essence, you know, there isn't any other way to force Turkey um, to redefine its relationship. There is no mechanism to kick Turkey out of NATO. Um, any, you know, effort to hold, you know, let's say Turkey accountable, whether it's rhetorically or through some other device, um, actually, you know, at least in terms of the ways in which I think it's generally conceived in NATO, actually hurts NATO more than it hurts Turkey. And I think that, you know, especially now in 2022, with NATO so heavily committed uh, in Ukraine, uh, you know, there is a real aversion to try to cause too much of um, you know uh, of a disturbance within the the general NATO Turkey relationship, and that may also go uh, for you know the relationship bilaterally. Um, that there are limits to which you know one can express their discontent. So you know Macron's statement in 2020, you know I mean, you're right in pointing it out. It came at a time in which you know the stakes were considerably lower than they are now. Um, but I think. You know, going forward, I think that, you know, what will be interesting to watch is uh, ways in which states may be able to try to circumvent Turkey uh, and its role. And, you know, we could you could see it in terms of things, for example, you mentioning France, uh, France's security guarantees that are uh, that it has made with Greece. OK, which is outside the framework of NATO, um, but very much kind of formed within the general universe of, you know, kind of collective security politics within Europe. So, I mean, those are things that may, uh, one may see in the future. And, and I'm not necessarily sure Turkey has an answer for those, that kind of arrangement or those sorts of prospects for the future. So, um, Ryan is out. And there's a lot to break down here, but what's your what's your biggest take so far on this kind of very long and fascinating conversation on the state of uh, Turkey's foreign policy and maybe some things that kind of really stood out to you? I think the comment that stood out to most was in his discussion of the prospects of war with Greece in the Aegean, 
is highlighting the fact that that is not just a domestic posturing issue for Erdogan, but the fact that this is really an existential issue for Turkish politicians mm -hmm. and national figures within Turkey. Uh, in the article that we referenced in War on the Rocks, which I truly encourage everyone to go and read, he quotes a member of the opposition saying that Erdogan has actually not been tough on this issue at all because a real leader would just go in and seize the island as Turkey did for North Cyprus. And I think that element of Turkish policy, when you see the coverage of Turkish foreign policy, it's so much about Erdogan and it's not enough about the domestic forces that might be shaping Turkish foreign policy. And I think it, it comes, it rings most true for me, at least, in that standoff with Greece. Something we, which we talked about a bit later on in the um, uh, patron conversation, which I thought was quite, quite interesting, is the kind of those tensions with Greece are happening amidst a kind of rise in tensions in Turkey with America specifically, but also kind of NATO more generally. Um, there's been a distinctive attempt at having a cakeist policy, foreign policy, you know, uh, having your NATO cake and eating your outside of NATO cake at the same time, um, which has been in full display, as Ryan said, during the um, past few months of the war in Ukraine with, with Turkey seemingly playing all sides at the same time. Um, but I think it kind of, kind of reaches to kind of a different conversation, which is um, I'm not so sure there's so much of a breakdown of alliances, but and we're seeing the importance of NATO, its relevance at least, doing this conflict in Ukraine, but maybe a breakdown in the scope and scale of these alliances where you're kind of being reduced to a kind of much more limited, um, how could I say this, um, nuclear center so to speak and you know maybe this we could call this you know mini nationalism but i thought the alliance that france made with with turkey um well not especially explicitly in light it's at first a defense procurement deal which was kind of enhanced into a strategic defense partnership um we could be seeing things like that happening increasingly within nato but also within kind of larger uh, alliances where you feel there's a need for kind of a distinct partnership to respond to a precise threat or a precise challenge. Um, and I just find it very interesting. I think that Turkey knows it. right now it's having the best of both worlds. But the question is, if by pushing it too much, it could actually, um, could we essentially have kind of a shadow NATO within NATO where you have essentially Turkey being excluded of all the important conversations and um, and it's normally part of a part of NATO, but it's it's lacking on on many of the important intelligence sharing, or um, no longer invited to some uh, exercises, or has limited positions in in kind of NATO headquarters. Uh, that that could be a possibility, maybe. It's it's similar to some of the discussions we've had about the European Union. Uh, George Osborne liked to float this in the build up to the referendum, the idea of a or during the negotiation with the European Union prior to the referendum of a two-tier Europe, where there's the core states that integrate fully, and then there's the peripheral states who are members of the trading bloc, show up to the meetings, but don't integrate fully. And we sort of have two tracks for what you want for Europe. And for NATO, that could be a similar path, in part because NATO has redefined itself really since the collapse of the Soviet Union as a 
defensive umbrella for nascent democracies and for protection of democratic values in various conflict zones around the world, Turkey and indeed some other members of uh, NATO don't necessarily agree with that mission for the organization, but Turkey is strategically vital for NATO. It's the second largest military within NATO by numbers of armed forces, and it's engaged in many peacekeeping missions and indeed offensive conflicts around, well, I would say, I won't say around the world because it's mostly in the Mediterranean mm. basin, um, but it's engaged in a lot of activities. So it is still an important partner for NATO as an organization. But if you start to see NATO transitioning into a democracy promotion security alliance, then Turkey, whose foreign policy isn't really geared towards that, might not want to align itself too closely with NATO. And maybe you'll start to see that two-track system that some people have broached for Europe becoming a thing for NATO. And then the last thing I'll say on this, though, is um, that Turkey's unique geopolitical position, both in terms of its geography, its history, and its culture, means that, you know, NATO's always had that grounding in the Euro-Atlantic, and Turkey is, both is you know, it's a Mediterranean country, it's an Asiatic country. Mm. Uh, some people would argue there's strands of European elements to it, but it doesn't really fit in that Euro-Atlantic mold. Yeah. And some of those conversations, and Ryan mentioned this when talking about, say, the difference between Poland and Hungary being in the EU versus Turkey being in the EU, is that it doesn't have that grounding uh, in Euro-Atlanticism, and that can be a cause for divergence. Yeah. Um, on on the EU, I think that's kind of a really interesting conversation. Obviously, Ryan is not an expert on, on EU politics. He's more focused on the Turkish side. But it's actually quite staggering to see how much the conversation has just simply collapsed in a matter of a decade because there wasn't much progress 10 years ago but at least the conversation was still going there's still goodwill at this point um i remember actually when i was working with um ben haddad at the hudson institute in dc i remember working on an article he got published in foreign policy i believe where he was calling for for the eu to uh, break off with Turkey on the accession, saying it was kind of a complete hypocrisy. Everyone knew it wasn't going to happen. It was just creating unnecessary frustration. And I mean, I I, st- I still stand by a lot of things that were written back then. Back then, you know, um, it's going nowhere. It's creating frustration. Um, it's creating also kind of you know fantasies. We all remembered the last weeks of Brexit, how the p- potential accession of Turkey to the EU was a big. Um, big decider as well um it, it just feels like it's completely unnecessary and also on top of that undeniably turkey has taken a turn for the worse in its foreign policy of the past decade um i talked about it a little bit um but Erdogan's pressure on on european democracy over issues like secularism or using its diaspora to um as kind of an electoral weapon is simply unacceptable and on top of that there's been kind of an attempt to harness some kind of muslim nationalism on the um on the international stage which has been hugely confrontational with, with europe and specifically with france and germany um uh, at this point you know it, it feels it feels like we, we are just adding tension to tension and we should really be considering um 
know, being a, a little stiffer with with um, with Turkey and making sure they understand where our limits are. I'm not sure I can um, fully accept that they've that the foreign policy has gone for the worse. I think Turkey, in many ways, is doing things that other countries do, but they're getting criticised for it because Erdogan himself has a negative image in many Western capitals and in the Western press. Um, because of his domestic politics and his domestic political rhetoric. But in terms of the way Turkey has been more of an activist in certain parts of the globe, Turkey is the one that has stepped in to try and provide stability in Libya when Britain, France, and the United States essentially washed their hands of the situation after removing Gaddafi. Turkey is the one that stepped in to provide military support to the UN-backed government in Tripoli. Um, and so I think... Turkey is doing a lot of activist and interventionist things overseas and rediscovering that voice that it had enjoyed for the better part of 500 years mm. um, on and off, granted. But it's doing it in a way that is making uh, the more traditional powers uncomfortable because of the brashness with which Erdogan has been doing it, which has been central to his appeal at a domestic level. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure I can fully uh, accept that it's gotten worse. I think it's gotten more assertive. And I think it's for the benefit of Turkey's image globally and for its influence globally. You see the number of alliances that Erdogan has been able to make. And sort of one unheralded thing, um, although it probably won't go anywhere, has been an attempt by Erdogan to actually reach out and normalize relations with Armenia. Um, and we don't need to sort of, everyone is aware of the history between those two countries mm -hmm. and the genocide, obviously, that took place. But that's a sort of unheralded thing that Turkey's regional role um, has enabled it to do when other powers wouldn't necessarily be able to do that because they haven't earned that reputation of being assertive, of being involved, of being engaged in various hotspots around the world. Well, I, was, I wasn't thinking about um, what was going on in Libya. I was rather thinking about kind of very direct confrontations that's been going on. I mean, Turkey was one of the loudest voices um, on the boycott of French products um, two years ago. Uh, which are just kind of a very tense moment in Franco-Turkish diplomatic relations, at least probably the most tense moment in a, in a long while. Um, but it's an interesting conversation. I think we, we, we probably will do another episode on maybe more specifically Erdogan and more of a national angle, because um, it's actually quite remarkable to see how much this country has transformed itself in 20 years. I know my, my girlfriend used to live in Turkey uh, with her family 15 years ago. And um, I mean, it's a country that's been changing very quickly and it's definitely worth um, a conversation on kind of Erdogan and national politics angle, given the election coming this summer, which should be quite important. Um, but anyways, thanks a lot to Ryan for coming to the show. Thanks a lot, Julian, for, for being here as well. Um, although you are kind of contractually obliged to be here, but uh, thank you so much. Um, and a special thank you for all of our wonderful patrons. Um, I really think once again, the... The Patreon conversation we just had with Ryan was um, incredibly insightful and um, really adds a lot of nuance and background to the conversation we had. And so thank you for, for our patrons, Guy, Paloma, Henry, Carol, Martina, Raphael, and David um, for sponsoring the show and, um, and really allowing us to um, have bigger dreams and, and keep, keep you know, returning to the show every week. Thanks a lot, Julian. Thank you. And yes, I encourage everyone to check out Ryan's work. He's got a couple of books on Kamal Ataturk. Yeah. Um, for those of you interested in that transition between the Ottomans and the modern Turkish state, 
And as we mentioned in the show, he has a book coming up soon on the Ottoman Empire. The last days of the Ottoman Empire. I have to get the the title right. Every time there's a there's a book about the last days of an empire, I always go decline and fall. Thank you, Edward Gibbon. Yeah. But yeah, I encourage everyone to check it out. Absolutely. So to all of you, I say see you next week.